Hey everyone, this is Alan Schimmel, and you're watching another episode of CISO Talk. Uh, CISO Talk is a bi-weekly meeting of CISOs and other security personalities where we talk about topics relevant to our security audience. And we've got an amazing uh, group of personalities on this show. I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. I am going to start with my friend Joel Fulton. Joel, why don't you, quick introduction. Thank you, Alan. My name is Joel Fulton. I was previously the CISO at Splunk and led security and risk teams at Google, Symantec, Boeing, lots of startups. So I started my own startup in January of 2020, Lucidum. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Joel. Next up, we'll go to Anthony Johnson. Anthony, introduce yourself. Thank you very much, Anthony Johnson. Uh, I'm managing partner. I run an organization called Delve Risk. We do marketing research. Um, for sales and marketing teams, and formerly the CISO at organizations like J.P. Morgan, the Corporate Investment Bank, Fannie Mae, GE Treasury, um, a number of board seats. So I'm excited to be here. Thanks a lot. Excellent. Next up, Nicole Dove. Nicole, go ahead. Hello, everyone. Nicole Dove here. I am Business Information Security Officer at Warner Media. I host the Urban Girl Corporate World Podcast, and I'm a visiting lecturer at Clark Atlanta University. Fantastic. Last but not least on our guest panel, Mike Rothman. Hello, everybody. So Mike Rothman, President, Disrupt Ops, President, Securosis, 30-year industry gadfly, been there, done that, screwed it up. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion with this esteemed panel of people who are far more talented than me. So I'm hopefully, hopefully learning a bunch today as well. All righty. Matt, why don't you uh, give your little background? It's not little. Matt Newfield, I'm the Chief Security and Infrastructure Officer at Unisys, and as always, excited to be here, uh, be a part of the conversation. And then last but not least, Mitchell. <laughs> Mitch Ashley, I'm uh, CEO of Accelerated Strategies Group, analyst firm in the cybersecurity, DevOps, cloud space. And I'm also CTO, CISO with MediaOps with Alan. Absolutely. So let me see if I can hold this together. Guys, before we get started today, by the time you all are watching this, it's probably been almost a week, but we, we lost a real, one of the best of us in the security field this past weekend, our friend Dan Kaminsky, who, besides being probably one of the best security researchers and most impactful in, in the kinds of things he worked on, was, I will tell you genuinely, one of the nicest people in an industry that has plenty of nice people, but also an industry that has plenty of ego, plenty of, of, quite frankly, prejudice, plenty of, of, of issues we need to do better on. And, and Dan really represented better in so many different ways in the, the level of his research and the kind of person he was. And it's, you know, 42 years old, it's, um, it's, it's just beyond a shame. Shame doesn't begin to go there. So if you don't mind, let's just take a quick moment to reflect and, and remember Dan Kaminsky, who represents, I think, what we all strive for. Okay. Um, I don't know how I get myself into these things. I get a little worked up. Um, all right, but we're going to talk today about supply chain. Look, and supply chain attacks have been in the news now pretty much solidly since the beginning of the year or slightly thereafter with the, a big one. We don't have to name names. I think everyone knows their names. The 
companies involved and government agencies and everything else. But it seems to have opened up a new a new vector, a new a new attack surface that maybe we haven't really thought about as much as we should have and now we're going to have to. And and so I'm going to throw it out to you. Is is this truly a new attack surface? What do we have to do to prevent the next one happening? Are we doing anything? Mike, you're shaking your head. So yeah, I'm but let's you let's it. hit the let's hit the new the new thing, right? The shiny thing. It it ain't mm-hmm. new, right? It's not new. Right now, it's coming a little bit of a different flavor. And we've been seeing this for a long time anyway. It's a little bit of a different flavor because it's part of an approved product suite that, you know, obviously we don't have it. But anytime you let a contractor into your environment, you've got an interloper who is not part of your organization. So whether it's external software, external people, external devices, you've got external stuff, which means we've got an attack surface issue that we have to manage. This one, albeit, again, innovative, smart, but not new, right? And I just want to, you know, kind of make that clear to everybody. And I'll even throw one. I I think what we're seeing actually flies in the face of a lot of legacy security mindsets. We all remember risk transference. It was the the fun genre. It was a fun thing that people talked about 10 years ago. Why do you hire third parties? I want to transfer risk. Why do you go to big companies? I transfer my risk to them. And I think one of the very interesting things that I'd love to get opinions on here is, so you transferred the risk. That's great. They now caused a problem for you. How did that work out for you? Because I'm pretty sure it didn't work out really well. And it, it has really changed a lot of scope. And it, it comes to show a lot of what we talk about here on CISO Talks about knowing your environment. How do you know if you're exposed to third-party risk if you don't have a TPRM program? I talk to COOs, CIOs, CISOs all the time that are like, so what does that TPRM stand for? What? And you're like, I, I'm going to scratch my head. And Five days ago, another one came out. Again, as Alan said, we're not going to talk names. But it was a small company, but it made big international press. And how many people could say, I know for a fact in our organization, we use them. Make it harder. What are you doing to make sure all of your vendor partners, all of those, Mike, as you said, your third parties, how do you know they're not using or their parties? And what are you doing to get assurances via a TPRM program, I, I think we will continue to see this. And, and I think we're going to start seeing cyber insurers catching up where they're, they're going to crush you if you don't have a good auditable program in place. So I'll throw it out. What do you all think? So uh, I'll only relay a, a recent conversation I had. Um, this has been a set of conversations with a good number of the CISOs from large pharma organizations. Um, and it was around supply chain risk. Um, and uh, apparently there's four or five companies that are authorized, that have the ability to actually bring things to a, um, what do they call it? Uh, a proof of concept for the pharmaceutical testing. There's yeah. only four. Clinical trial. Yeah, clinical trial. So I was talking with the CISO, she was telling me, hey, there's four, yada, yada. And she said, the first three, they all got ransomware. And, really? and so she knew that the fourth one and it's not like they could say no, like in the middle of COVID during this time period, they have to go through clinical trials. So it's not like you can say a no to this answer um, of, are we going to do this? And the fourth one, she told them, she's like, listen, this fourth one's going to get ransomware. And they're like, well, how do you know? It's like, well, because the other three 
all got ransomware and all of us pharmaceuticals, this is the only channel for us to do this. And we know that they don't have security programs like this. And it was just this fascinating conversation of like, you actually don't have a choice on some of these situations. You have to accept this risk. So then what do you do? Do you try to transfer it? Well, you can't. Because if there's some aspect of the clinical trial risk, it comes back to your company. Um, so it's this whole different mindset of, of truly owning the risk. And then how do you mitigate this? And um, I think there's going to be some aspect of a collaborative that has to think about it. Um, but it is a crazy different world. But Anthony, what's amazing about that, at least they're having the conversation. There's a mm -hmm. big difference about going into this blindly going, you know, there's four out there, three are offline for some reason. I'll go with the fourth one and let's just not worry about it as compared to that conversation. And Nicole, you're dealing as a BSO, you're probably looking a lot internally to the business unit you're functioning with and making sure that this comes to the forefront. You know, we were all joking prior to this that, you know, we're always the pain points for businesses. And Nicole said something interesting. She's like, oh, no, 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 I, I'm not the pain point. I make it better. And I'd love to get your opinion on how do you help companies understand that third-party risk is real? Yeah, it's it's a couple things that I want to tag on to something that Anthony said. I think the conversation with business leaders is, are is beginning to change, especially around accepting risk, because a lot of times um, I've worked with leaders who just say, hey, we want to do this. We know it's risky. Just let's just do the paperwork. It's not let's just do the paperwork, right? We do have to get these risk exception agreements filed. But a big part of what I think a lot of BSOs and a lot of businesses are, are, are missing is that the paperwork has to include what is going to be your strategy for mitigating the risk that you are accepting. It's not just a green light to say, go do it anyway, but it's about really understanding the threat landscape and what all of that entails and how to just minimize it as much as possible and then monitor for these types of things. How do you educate your employee base to not be susceptible to, to these things? And then what does your prevention and your incident response look like? And I think a lot of these, uh, these third parties of your tax are missing key pieces of that conversations, which is why we see them evolving and emerging and continue to happen. I agree. And let's let's continue that because another thing we've, we've been talking about is how do you do TPRM if you don't even know what you have? And Joel, I know your organization's building and helping give visibility, you know, where you come from, you know, the sim world, you know, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think we're moving in the right direction? Are we going backwards? So I thought it was interesting that Mike talked about this is not a, a new issue. This is not a new attack surface. <clears throat> I'll, uh, I'll help prove it. In the second century, Juvenal in his satires wrote, quis custodiet ipsos custodies. Now you've heard this, you've read it, but it is. I thought I heard it before. I right? It's familiar to you, right? It's, yeah. You've got the bumper sticker, Alan. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. It is who watches the watchman. So when you bring someone in to guard you, who is guarding their guarding of you? And it's not uh, turtles all the way down. It's not driving apathy. It, it is truly, um, remember the 80s? Everyone that uh, you are with is like being all the people they are with. That's supply chain risk management. And one of the things that we haven't yet touched on that I'd like to open the Pandora's box of is at one prior employer, we had to start 
a TPRM. If you remember in 2014, there was the Hydra issue that hit several security companies, and that sure. was an attack by APT, we didn't call it that then, to get into security products so they could be at the kernel level of operating systems of the security vendors' companies. So we had to hit this TPRM. 16,000 vendors in our Oracle tracking system with very little detail about what most of those vendors did. Now, never let a supply chain <clears throat> breach happen, go. What do you need? And that kind of chaos, how do you prioritize triage, understand the services, when this is a job most people don't like? This is yeah. a garbage job doing third-party yeah. risk management. So I think we've got two issues. We've got chaos, complexity, uncertainty, and we've got lack of treating people well who are good in that area. So, uh, you know, there are a couple of different ways to, to go through that. And and thank you for the Latin lesson, Joel. That was fantastic, right? I just, I, you know, it's one of those things where, oh, okay, got it, right? Yeah, I totally heard that before. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I kind of look at this more from a structural issue as well. I mean, you know, the program is the program. We got to ask questions. We got to scan. We got to pray, right? A lot of prayer because with 16,000 of anything, right? There's no way you're actually, you know, kind of going through the process of really validating a lot of these things. But we also don't need to be hurting ourselves in the process, right? So if we've got a big ass flat network, you're asking for somebody to come up and kick you in the groin, right? It's as simple as that, right? If, if you're moving a whole bunch of stuff to SaaS or cloud and don't have proper segmentation, isolation in a lot of these environments, you're asking for trouble, right? So one of the things that's most exciting about a lot of the evolution of the infrastructure, right? SaaS, cloud, PaaS, a lot of these other things is that we can really restrict the attack surface. We can build de default deny connectivity between a lot of these places. And can we eliminate all the third-party risk? Absolutely not, right? A percentage of those things are going to get popped consistently every week, every month, right? Every quarter. But what we don't need to do is, assuming we get popped, is give them free reign on everything else, right? And I think a key part of this is not just, hey, let's empower the TPRM people. They're going to fix everything. It's no. Let's think about our infrastructure and how do we reduce blast radius knowing that something is going to go boom because we've all been doing this. I'm 30 years in, right? I'm sure a bunch of you are in similar type of boats. It's going boom, right? That's what we've seen every damn month since we started this thing, right? So what are we doing to make sure that when it goes boom, we're not putting the rest of the infrastructure. Let me, let me toss one thing in there though, right? And, and this is what I find to be really fascinating, right? I have a philosophy for my investing. I buy on breach, right? Organization has a breach. It drops 20 points. I buy. Let's just wait. There's only one stock that's still not recovered. Just one. Every other one is, is massive upside relative. And so when you, when you think about that, right? There are so many organizations where, yes, it's going to be a big breach, but I remember sitting in, you know, looking at the insurance paperwork, filing for our cyber insurance and looking at our board. And if it wasn't a, if it wasn't an event that was an impactful over $300 million, we didn't, we wouldn't even report it to the board, right? Unless it was cyber because of the optics. But when you think about that, most of these, these, you know, business leaders Look at this and be like, man, is that really material from JP Morgan writes off $2 billion a year in fraud losses. It's not that they like doing it. They just said, eh, that's the cost of fraud. 
right? Two billion. Um, and so we have to have a different view of how supply chain risk trickles back to us. What is the real impact of a breach to an organization? Um, and I, I love using this analogy. It's if, if a business owner, a CEO was given a magic genie lamp, said, hey, you rub this lamp, tomorrow you're going to have a breach. You're going to make $100 billion. That leadership team will have a conversation. They might, the, the question is whether the CISO will be invited to the conversation or not. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, know, you know, Anthony, you remind me, your, your example of you know, how much liability do we have is, is a financial definition and we think about security the same way a lot of times in our contract how do we how do we put as much liability on someone else right so we yeah. we mitigate how much we have to potentially shell out if something happens and just the opposite mindset is what we're talking about right we're trying to segment and make much smaller we're exposing ourselves of risk to other organizations so in some ways the existing kind of business parameters, whether it's fraud or losses from other kinds of events, they're the opposite of way we need to think about security and how we manage that risk. So I think there are three things companies still do wrong today that always shock me when it comes to TPRM. And they're pretty basic in my opinion. We're talking big numbers at, at here. We've all worked at some very large organizations, 5,000 vendors, 16,000 vendors. I know companies that have 40,000 vendors. And you start talking that numbers, it sounds like this is insurmountable, but there's a big difference between the vendor you're using for your circuits and the vendor you're using that's cleaning uh, the gardens outside of one of your offices or you know, the electricians that may be doing some work in a certain part of your- Tell that to Target though, Matt, right? It was an AC HVAC vendor who- Yep, they were the day so it's always funny. We tier our vendors into three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier three have no way they could do any real impact to our corporation. And tier one being they can. And by the way, custodial services inside of an office building, those are always required tier one. They have access to your facility. I worked for a company years ago, and I remember we used to have these massive phone bills and we had a forensic auditor come in and it was the cleaning crew in the middle of the night was calling home countries and hours and hours and hours of problems. We were finding some of the paperwork missing out of offices. And again, not where I work today, this is 15 years ago, but they were stealing it and selling it because they could make money. Though, But by doing that, you can change TPRM to focus on 5%. 10% of your population instead of trying to do the same thing. And for us, we look at that smaller population. I don't trust that people are going to fill out a STIG, for example, correctly, because you give me a STIG and you don't make it so I'm really responsible. Sure, we do all that stuff. I, you know, People do that to you all the time. With that population, you can actually verify set up a video conference and make them show evidence that they're doing the things they're saying they're doing. And the hardest of the three that I just quickly want to throw out and get your opinion, how many times have you talked to an organization that has never actually done it, even something as simple as a tabletop exercise with a key vendor? They're your circuit provider. They're your disaster recovery provider. They're your something that is impactful and you've never done a DR with them? How do you know it's going to work when, you know, the proverbial stuff hits the fan. You, you don't if you don't practice. And then it's education. 
people do not educate their organizations on the importance of this or even how to calibrate a company. Nicole's talking about going back inside of her business and Anthony, some of the stuff you're throwing, we're all talking these things, but we're not coming from the same definition standard. Forget globally, forget industry, but even inside of a company, if you don't set with your board, with your senior leadership team, with your business owners, when I say this, this is the definition, do we all agree? And you constantly remind them, you're going to fail because we throw out these really crazy words like breach all the time. Breach means something different to every company. And people throw think, these terms around way too much. Sorry. Do you guys think it's different when, when and as the vendors become bigger than the companies? And because and, there used to be a world of where, you know, we would go talk to our telcos and say, you know what? I'm this company and you're going to go do this for me. And now you can be like, hey, I'm JP Morgan. And Amazon says, okay, that's nice. Here's your terms. <laughs> you don't get to negotiate anything. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Like, how does that change with supply chain as the suppliers get bigger and more consolidated? Because we lose a lot of the oomph. So well, two, two pieces of that. Oh, go ahead, Joel. You, you go first. I wanted to disagree with Matthew from way back at the very beginning when Matthew talked about transferring risk. I don't think you can ever actually transfer risk. I think you can transfer responsibility to take action, but that risk remains with me. I've chosen to use you as a tool to ameliorate yeah. my risk. So Anthony, we had those conversations, man. We go into uh, a vendor whose name rhymes with Schmoogle, and they <laughs> say, hey, uh, that's a cute little security standard you got going on there, but you know, you can go pound sand. So what do you do? Well, that means I can't transfer responsibility for those risk-related actions to Schmoogle. I have to retain them. So that means through the users and partners and business apps, I have to have compensatory controls that prophylactically surround that offering that won't be amenable to my risk standard. So that's one approach that we've taken. What about Microsoft or Schmamazon? And by <laughs> the way, Joel, we are agreeing. I was saying people believed in risk transference, but it was never real. I know we were agreeing, but I wanted some controversy because Alan looked like he was <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, yeah, the, 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 the description, now, the description I use is you, you can outsource responsibility, but you can never outsource accountability. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, kind of I've been I've been saying that for years. Uh, and I was actually going to go exactly where you went, Joel, which is the idea that, um, you, you know, some of these big hyperscalers, you, you know what, you actually can start to negotiate the paper a little bit, uh, but not a lot. Right. So, so the, the, they'll work with you a little bit, but not a lot. Right. So, so what you can see and what they are pretty good at is documenting a lot of the stuff that they have. Right. Not just their SOC twos, but their control sets. I mean, mm -hmm. all that stuff is documented. Then it's up to you to take that. So it's, it's the whole compliance inheritance idea, which is they're doing a certain amount of stuff on their infrastructure. I know what that is. I can document that. I can show how the whole chain of events works when I'm sitting with my assessor. So my stuff is on top of that. I know what their stuff down there looks like. So do I really have to verify what they're doing? Probably not, right? You know, it's the other 8,000 vendors that you have that are really problematic because they don't have all that stuff documented. They probably lied their ass off on their cake, right? You Absolutely. usually look at, the C you look at the CSA cake and go, oh, these guys do this. It's just like, no, they don't. I'm telling you, they don't do that. There's no way they did that, right? So, so then again, it just gets back to the whole idea of we can't do things and have no risk, 
right? So what we have to do is, and I wouldn't even say focus on detection and response. Yes, we have to do that, right? But architecturally, this is where we keep screwing things up. And I'll come and hit the same point again. Architecturally, we're not helping ourselves by putting all these things in one place. And, you know, I, I and we do a lot of AWS and, and Azure assessments now. And I can't tell you how many times we walk in and they have, well, we've got 15 production apps in this account. And I'll just look at my watch and go, you've got about 10 minutes and you're dead. And they'll be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, sorry, I was wrong. You've been dead for about three weeks already. <laughs> right. Because once you put a whole bunch of stuff in one account, you're dead. You're just asking to be dead. Right. So it, it really, again, what, what we can't do is continue to just build these old things and lift and shift this crap we've been doing in our data centers for 30 years that work like shit. And then we go, well, I wonder why I keep getting hacked in AWS because you're doing the same damn stuff you were doing before. Mike, right? if we don't take some passion around this, it's just I hate it. Well, because I have the same conversation 15 times, Matt, and it pisses me off, right? And and that's what it is. It's just I get irritated. So, Nicole, now you know the real Mike Rothman. I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah that be a lot grumpy. I'm actually a lot more mellow. Imagine what I was like 15 years ago. The kindler knows what I was like 15 years ago. I think Anthony makes a good point, though. I want to jump back to that because I actually had a business partner at one of my old companies say, you know, we have this vendor and they're so big, they don't care what we ask them for. And the reality is, you have to go toe to toe with your vendor sometimes. Like you, you, you do not know unless you ask. And a lot of times it's all about negotiation and influence. Because when you come to the table, sure, you have an ask. A lot of times I, I even challenge my business partners to go to our vendors and ask them to comply with key pieces of our policies, of our baselines. You would really be surprised about how low cost it is to get them to do that and how willing they are. Um, but I, I think that there is this perception that these companies, to your point, Anthony, when they get so big, we're just a small piece of the puzzle. But the reality is if you go to them with an ask, and maybe that's not it, but if you come to the table with some sort of solution, you'll be very, very surprised about how willing they are to work with you. There was a subtlety you threw in there that has been very useful. And that is typically, I'm the department of no. And by the time that supplier review gets to me, I'm the guy saying, okay, let's go check the tire pressure and oil pressure. And But if I can grab the person that they're selling to inside yes. my work and have that person come to that supplier and say, here's some problems to solve. Now, instead of two on one, it's the two of us yes. on the supplier. And they will more often, Ben. That was a really good nuance you pulled out, Nicole. Yeah, it's, it's the brilliant way to do it is when you put money speaks at a lot of these organizations and if you get the, if their seller that is selling to you, get them involved or your client relation, because a lot of companies also love NPS, 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 and you go, I'm, I, you're, I think it's NPS time. I need compliance on this. I'm about to get a survey and I'm pretty sure there's a one in your future. Unless I get some assistance here, I'm pretty sure I am not going to be a nine or a 10. There are things you can do. Yes. But the other interesting pieces for a lot of these really large vendors, at least you go in knowing what you're getting. There's not a lot of question for a lot of them. They've got the reports. They've got full stigs done for you. You know what it is. And it's, I think, Mike, to your point, it is incumbent upon us to review them and say, is the gap so big from our standard, then they shouldn't be your vendor. There's not just one cloud provider. There are multiple. There's not one circuit provider. There's not one. You, Or maybe your controls are wrong, or you have to add something. But one of the things yeah. we 
try to do here on the short time, Alan, to hand back to you is, okay, so we all know it's a problem. We know it's a problem. Third-party risk management's a problem. Most people don't get it. So we always want to leave parting advice, especially from experts like the, the four of you and, you know, Mitch, Al, and I will keep our mouths shut. But what do people do? How do they start? Because again, you all have said 10,000, 16. How do you start when you have this monumental problem? And I don't know of another organization where some executive goes, okay, group of people, you no longer have a day job because your day job is TPRM. I would love to see that because it it's, it's been, oh, it's 5% of your job and 10% of your job. And maybe if we're lucky, the legal team will get involved when they're not busy doing legal stuff. Now what do you do? And that's the big question for me is how do we help people watching this start? Anybody? Yeah, I, I think what's, what's interesting is that this is the space where we should have had enough innovation to have a utility service meaning there are so many companies using these same vendors. We're asking very similar questions, but our, and I hate to say it this way, our CISO cyber egos say, no, 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 no. The way I frame the question is way better than the way they frame the question. So you have to answer my version of the question. Um, and we, we, we did not, and we have not accepted a standard certification of a utility service. So like when you think about like in, in medical, um, there's a standard label um, that, you know, they, they didn't do the, the full bill of materials. They said, you know what? They've been very, they, that vendor product set has been verified or facility to a standard um, certification level. We could easily do that as, um, as, as organizations, but we haven't. And it's just this really, really fascinating question set of like, the only answer I can come up with is ego. Um, and unless there's something, there's another thing I'd love to, love to get that perspective. E but economics, Anthony, economics. I'm not sure what the business model for that looks like. Um, because everybody says, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And then you go, great, hundred thousand bucks. And they're like, no, thanks. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, I, I think it's a great idea, right? Underwriter labs. I mean, I, you, you know, the CSA, right? Cloud Security, um, you know, Cloud Security Alliance. They've been trying to do this with their, you know, kind of Star Watch service uh, and their cake. So, so there are some initiatives. And again, I spend all my day in cloud, right? So that's kind of where uh, I've got the most relevant information. Um, but it's been a crappy business for them, right? So it's one of these things that it it makes perfect sense, but it doesn't necessarily translate to you know somebody wanting to invest in it. Had a couple as, ideas. As sad as that is. Yeah, it's my ideas is really based on some of what I've seen companies do really well and really, really bad. Um, one thing that I saw really slick, and this this may be prevalent, I'm not sure, is I've seen a partnership between the information security teams and procurement. And at some organizations, they will not even let you sign a contract if you did not get the green light from CISO. Um, I think the second part to that, though, is that's great, but you've got to make sure that the third-party risk management program is ever-evolving because bad actors just get smarter and smarter as the days go along. So that it, it just can't be stagnant for a point in time. You have to have some analysis and assessment of their behaviors. Um, I've even seen even as much as the different profiles that they use to, to, to carry out some of these, these attacks. Um, and you would also be surprised about how many organizations don't have recurring third-party um, reviews with the uh, uh, companies that they're already engaged with. Like that 
<laughs> just blows my mind. And I think the thing that sometimes we all forget is how do you make uh, security hygiene digestible for your employee population? Because as we've seen with so many of these attacks, it's the people who we have granted access to the data that we're trying to protect that are the biggest risk to it. So I think it's a combination of that and, and probably many more that you, that you guys can add on. Yeah, I, I guess the one thing that I would kind of push folks to get, and this is through, an, and, and again, Nicole, I loved your concept because that's about persuasion, right? And I've always said that one of the most critical skills for any person in a senior security role is the idea of persuasion because we tend to be empowered to do not a lot, right? We're responsible for everything. So you've got to be real good at getting folks to do the right thing without really any, you know, kind of stick in order to, to force them to do that. Right. So what making an ad to get people in the cybersecurity, how do you want to be responsible for everything, accountable for everything? Oh, yeah. I, I keep telling people it's the shittiest job on earth, but everybody seems, seems to want to do it. You own right? nothing so, and influence everything. That's right? exactly right. That's exactly right. So so part of it gets back to and again, this is this persuasion thing where, right, if we think we end up with the proverbial six shooter, right, we get one one shot. We can intervene in one situation. Right. You can't do every one. You can't even do most of them. But you have to be able to have one where you say, we can't do this. Right. We, we can't do this. This puts the business at too much risk. It could be somebody huge. It could be somebody small. But you have to have enough credibility internal to the organization to say, we can't do this and for them to listen. But you have to be very, very careful about when you, you take that shot. Right. Because you have to be right and you don't get another one. Right. So. So. And again, there are millions of things that you want to do. There's only one that you have. to do. And if you can't get that, if you can't get one, you probably can't be successful in that environment. And the good news is you work in security. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of companies that need your skills. Go find somewhere else. Right. Because you can't be successful in that place. So I have to add on to that. In, and I think a lot of that might comes down to definition, right? It, it Saying no, if people believe you're saying no because you're the, the crazy cyber person, right? That That's where you run into problems. But for us here, you know, and Nicole, I, I loved your definition because that's what I implemented here. We have a procurement process, third-party risk management process where my team has multiple gates in that process. If we say no, no, with SLAs, we use SLOs here internally, obviously, but you know, I have a certain amount of time to review those. We give it a rating. And we even went so far, Mike, to our definition of who can actually accept risk and business owners can't accept that risk. There's a select few individuals in our corporation who can accept risk. And we have no problem. If they want to, if I say no, and this executive wants to accept the risk, it goes into my risk register. It's reported to the board on a quarterly basis, rock and roll, accept the risk all you want. I said, no, I said, no, you said, yes, you want to override it. Here's your form. And I can tell you in the years I've been here, that form is blank. No, nobody wants that, right? And it's, and it's, there's always the alternative. And I think the other thing to throw out there is we talk about the office of no, we got to change that. We're the office of no, but here's what you should do. And Mike, you and I've talked about, we've all talked about sure this. Happened. That's right. It's, it's no, but here's a better way. Here's a more secure way. Here's a less risky way. But it's around that definition, setting things up early on in the process so that you can build those relationships. 
I like to think of it not as being in the business of no, but helping them find the most secure, thoughtful yes. Yeah, yes and. Think of it as yes. Yes and. And, yes, and fill out can. that paperwork. Someone did that already. <laughs> fill out that paperwork. Sign your name right here. If there's a little pin there, put a little blood. It's good. Don't worry about the blood. It's clean. <laughs> Joel, I know you've been chomping. Well, I'm dying to go back to uh, Anthony's comment because I've been on both sides of that. Any phrase. Latin on this one? I'll leave. I'll leave the Latin alone. I, I apologize for that. I thought that I was, was in a, church. It's that okay. was a faux pas on it's a different. No, way. no, Latin. Huh? Huh? Ranch, okay. you, know, you brought a little class to this, Joel. Thank you very much. <laughs> very, very, very little. Yeah. We on both sides of this TPRM, we have tried as a vendor. I've worked for vendors to give one unified, responsive questionnaire to all of the divergent requests, something that includes bits to COBIT for the gaming industry, something that's got the HIPAA and a Rosetta Stone. And people are like, yeah, that's neat. But, but when we do our TPRM, what we actually do is we've got a spreadsheet and it gives us a color based on your answers. And someone's got to put your answers in a spreadsheet and that's someone's going to be you, brother. And so we just, we're, we're, we're stuck. And then on the other side of evaluating them, there are these companies that have come out that are sort of reputation- management companies. I'm going to scan your AWS infrastructure and look at Shodan and tell you you have an F, but if you pay me, we can make you a C minus. <laughs> and so we're, we're stuck in this world of uh, no standards. Everybody's a snowflake that Anthony pointed out. And then this subjective manipulative approach. And I think the right approach is while all of us can long for mathematically, statistically valid objective approaches, since we can't have it, let's get the best subjective approach that we can. And when you want a risky vendor, your job is to develop the compensatory controls and to have those assessed in situ so that what you're doing doesn't cause net harm to us. And that is one way of transferring the responsibility internally that has worked really well. It takes the pressure off of my team to, are you done yet? It's Friday. We got to close this deal because we got the conference starting on Monday and I need to videotape everybody and get their birth dates and we're going to store that in the cloud and I need you to say yes to this. It takes that pressure off and puts it back with that requester to propose a solution, including that third party, that together is coherent in its risk management. Excellent. Guys, so... Um I think we've explored third-party risk as part of our supply chain, uh, protecting our supply chain. We're going to take the next two hours of our show to talk about other supply chain risk. Well, fortunately, we're not going to be able to do that today, though, because we're already well into our 45-minute time frame. But this was a great conversation. There's obviously more to be said about supply chains and how what we can do to protect for the next supply chain hack. Because that, that, that frankly is another problem in, in our world of security. We're always fighting what happened the last hack, not what happens the next hack, right? It's not gonna be what happened to the company at the beginning of the year. It's not gonna be what happened to the company just this past week, Matt. It's gonna be what happens next time. And, and anticipating that is what, you know, I used to have a lot of hair, Mike's hair was black. Um, it's what keeps us going at that, right? So anyway, though, I want to thank everyone for, for joining us on this CISO talk. I, I want to just go over, you know, our panel members. We don't pay people to come on our show. We invite our friends to come on and talk. But the least we could do is give them a shout out in terms of their 
companies. Joel, you just started. It's it's Lucidum, right? Is it Lucidum.com? Yes, sir. Lucidum.io. Io. Got it. Anthony. Deliver yes. risk. Is that how you pronounce it? Delve risk. We do Delve risk. Yep. Sales and marketing research. Um, studying Fortune 1000 companies. Fantastic. Mike. Uh, DisruptOps.com. Like it sounds. And Securosis. And Securosis. But yeah, um, I do a lot of stuff. Nicole. So I have a podcast, Urban Girl Corporate World, and I also am a public speaker on Winning at Work. So that's a lot of fun. Check that out. Matt, you're a, you're, you're a host, Matt. You don't get to say you're at Unisys. Mitchell and I are here at uh, MediaOps. You're there on watching this, hopefully. We hope you enjoyed it. But that's going to be a wrap on this version of CISO Talk. We'll be back in two weeks with another great show. Thanks for joining us. Good luck with your supply chain risk. And, and taking take you know taking the tiger by the tail there. This is Alan Schimmel for Mediops. We'll see you soon.